And every Tuesday and Thursday afternoons, we have been learning lots of things uh, about the Bible. Okay, I'm talking to you guys, Addison and Harmony and Desiree and Angelina and Scotty. And uh, one of the things we've been reading through is this Bible. It's called the Big Picture Story Bible. If you don't have this for your kids, I encourage you to get it. Dave Helm is a, is a great guy from College Church in uh, Wheaton. He has written this Bible for kids. Now, every kid's Bible puts things in and puts them out. Um, but the particular thing about this Bible is that he really tried to choose what stories to put in there and what stories to keep out to teach the big picture of the Bible. And uh, the kids especially love reading from the big picture Bible. Do you know why? Hey, what? I didn't hear anything. Here's why. I didn't. They get to eat snacks when they have their big picture Bible. <laughs> so they love their big picture Bible time. And uh, every time we, we read through, we hear, we just, we just review. And we've read about the very first verse in the Bible. It says, in the beginning, God made the heavens. Right? In the beginning, God made the earth. And we have read about Noah and how, or Adam and Eve and how they sinned. And we've read about Noah and the flood that came upon that destroyed everybody. And we read about the big promise that God made. Who did He make the promise to, guys? Yes, Desiree. Abraham made the big promise to Abraham. And Abraham had a child whose name was Isaac. And Isaac had a child whose name was Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. How many of you can name the, the sons of Jacob? I know, Chrissy, you can't. Can you guys name the sons of Jacob? Jacob are... Reuben, Simeon, go ahead, guys. Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. So we go through the twelve like that, and we talk about Joseph and what happened, and and then when he went to uh, Egypt, and uh, how how many plagues on Egypt? Ten plagues, you guys remember those? Water in the Nile is turned to blood. Frogs, gnats, and swarms of insects. Pestilence on livestock. Boils and hail. Locusts, darkness, death of firstborn. So we talked about that. The blood and, and passing over them. And then they got the Ten Commandments. And these guys can tell you the Ten Commandments also. And uh, we're working through that. And then, and then we're coming to the promised land and the continued rebellion of Israel. And then we're bringing to David. And we're just now coming to the New Testament here in the big, big picture storybook Bible. And uh, what we've been doing with the kids, just really, um, just really teaching from the ground up what God is about, what He's like. And it's always good to get a big picture of things. And that's what we have been doing for them. It's not just for them. It's also for us as well. You know, too often people look at the Bible and they think that it's an encyclopedia. So, in other words, what you need to do, the Bible is a, a, a book full of facts. And so, if you want to find out, you know, what God is like, well, just look it up in the Bible. It tells you what God is like. Or you want to know what heaven will be like, well, just look it up and figure out everything the Bible says about heaven or about Jesus or about the future. Just look it up in the Bible and kind of figure it out like there's an encyclopedia. Some people treat the Bible like that. Some people treat the Bible like a, a self-help book. You want to be happy in your marriage? Well, then look at the Bible and see what the Bible says. Do you want to know how to raise your children? Well, go to the Bible because the Bible teaches you how to raise your children. Or do you want to know what God wants of you? Well, the Bible does. Or how to get along with other people? The Bible helps you with that. Now, those things are true, right? I mean, you, the Bible does have lots of facts about God and Christ and eternity. And it does tell us how to help each other, but... But primarily, the Bible isn't like an encyclopedia. It's not like a self-help book. The Bible's like a novel. It tells a story from the beginning until the end. Fundamentally, it tells God's story. It tells the story of God creating a perfect world only to see His creatures rebel and separate themselves from the Creator. But God and His grace didn't leave us to ourselves. Rather, He sent a Savior to redeem us. His name is Jesus. And eventually, He will restore the creation to what it should be. With Jesus reigning in the new heavens and the new earth and those who believed and trusted in Jesus right there around the throne, worshiping Him and serving Him forever. That's the, that's the big story of the Bible. It's what we spend, 
So what we're going to spend actually four weeks studying the Bible. Now I think that that slide is up there. We're going to look for the next four weeks. We've got four weeks until Christmas. I really wrestled with what to, what to do because we just finished Second Timothy. 14 straight weeks through Second Timothy. We've got four weeks. We're going to start Mark in the beginning of January. And I thought I had four weeks. I had lots of different things come to my mind. And I thought, you know what, maybe it would be a good time again to uh, just survey the Bible, to remind us again what the whole Bible story is. And right up front, I want to give you the outline of the four messages I'm going to give. It's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. That's like a, a big picture of what the Bible teaches about. The, the creation of God. That's what we'll look at in Genesis today. The fall of man when man didn't believe God, rather rebelled against Him and fell from our perfect estate. Redemption, that's everything about Jesus coming to rescue us from our fallen condition. And then the restoration, when everything is restored, the whole creation, a new heavens and a new earth with all the creatures in it. It's a story of the Bible in four words. It's amazing, huh? Now, these words aren't unique to me. In fact, I'm not sure if you remember, 12 years ago, 12, not 12 years ago, two years ago, we did a series, again an overview, called 12 Stages in the Bible. How many of you remember that? Okay, we could probably sing our song, right? I don't know if we'll do that today or not, but let's just sing it. 12 stages in the Bible, let's learn them one by one. Creation, patriarchs, exodus, conquest, judges, Kingdom, exile, return, da 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 da, silence, gospel, church, and mission. Wonderful. Think about that was two years ago. We've not sung that song for two years. Just kind of maybe give you an indication about how much music can help to memorize things, right, Yvonne? She's a big advocate of that. Well, when I was preaching through that series, I remember, Darren, you asked me, you said, you know, Darren, dear Steve, I'm surprised that you did 12 stages. Why not just four? And he mentioned these four words to me, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And uh, so that week was four. So here we're going to do the same thing again, just reminding us of the story of the Bible. This isn't new to me. They've been used many, many times before. Darren brought them up because they've been used so many times before. But it does tell the story of the whole Bible. And what I love about these four words is that what is true about the whole Bible is also true about every believer in Christ. Is that you can take the, the meta-narrative of the Bible and kind of put it on our lives as well. Is that God is our Creator. He is my Creator. God has created me, and yet I have fallen from grace. I have sinned in Adam and in myself by choice and by volition. I've chosen sin. But God has sent a Savior to redeem me and to change me. And there will be a day when I will enjoy Him in the fullness of everything that He is in heaven. That's my story. That's the story of everyone who believes in Jesus. And if you keep these categories in mind, not only do they help you with the whole Bible, but they also help you with your own testimony. They also help you in your evangelism. and you're speaking to people, you can just see, okay, now, what is it that people believe about things? What is it they think about things? And, and, and when you see this framework, you see, you know what, maybe the different people have it off on different places. Like, for instance, if you meet an atheistic evolutionist, they don't believe that God created. Then I think if you meet someone like that and you talk to someone like that, you focus on the creation aspect. Because that, if, you, if you miss creation, you miss everything else. So you've got to get creation so you can pound in dialogue over those things. And there's lots of resources for that to speak about the marvels of creation as we go into our text this morning, we'll see that. But perhaps you talk with a New Ager who maybe says, I'm not sure about God, but you know, most everyone believes in God because God's made Himself evident to us. So you're talking with a New Ager, but he thinks that our, our, our solution to our problem is that, that we need to focus within ourselves. And you might say, well, his problem is he, he doesn't realize that the fall has happened. He doesn't realize he's a sinner. And so talk about sin and the devastation that the fall has brought to everybody. Or maybe you'll meet with someone who grew up in church, right? Knows all about God, knows all about sin, but is caught in the traps of legalism or in self-righteousness. And you say, well, what they need is they need to hear about the redemption. They need to hear about Jesus. And so preach the gospel to them. Preach the cross. 
in His redeeming work, free and clear, forgiven of all of our sins by faith in Jesus and see what God does in their life. Or, or maybe someone believes in the health, wealth, prosperity gospel where you know maybe there's some God and there's a Jesus and there's a fall and there's a Jesus, but they think that all the redemption is here and now. But you say, no, no, there's a restoration to the future. In fact, that's the greater restoration. Our best life isn't now. Our best life is later because it's suffer now and glory later. Exactly right. So you can focus your attention there. If you just keep these ideas in mind, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Let's say them together, right? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Now, in terms of chapters in your Bible, the creation covers the first two verses in the Bible. First two chapters in the Bible. Rather, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. That is the creation account. On mine, just on one page, there's your creation. And then when we think about fall, you can really think from Genesis 3 all the way through the whole Old Testament to Malachi chapter 4. That's just everything about the fall, and that's what I'll preach on next week. And, and it's, it's amazing. It's not just the fall and the sin, yeah, but you see the effects of it and the devastation of it and how there needs to be some solution out of it. And then when we think about redemption, we can really think about from Matthew chapter 1 through Revelation chapter 20 and just what God has done in Christ Jesus to redeem us from our sins, to make us right before God. And then the last two chapters of the Bible really deal with the, the restoration. Uh, Revelation 21 and 22. Now, as today, what we're going to do, our primary attention is going to be on Genesis 1 and 2, but know that 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 really sets a trajectory for the rest of the Bible. Um, Oftentimes throughout the Bible, and we'll see this, is that God talks about how He is the Creator. How you need to know that God created everything. And, And even you see how things are now is different than things were because God created them one way, but the fall has changed things. And, and, and they all relate together. And so likewise, when we talk about the restoration, the, even the creation itself sets a vision for what the restoration is going to be like in the future someday. And so today we're going to focus on Genesis 1 and 2. Before we get there, I do want to just, just make a comment here a little about, about preaching. And our, our method here at Rock Valley Bible Church, we normally just work through the Bible verse by verse, phrase by phrase. And our aim here is what we call Exposition. We're trying to be expository in all of our messages and everything that we do. By exposition, I I just mean this, that we expose the meaning of the Bible as God has brought it. The difference between exposition and topical would be a topical message. We say, okay, well, what does God say about man? Or what does God say about the sovereignty of God? And you go to lots of different verses and kind of bring out the sovereignty of God, but that treats the Bible like an encyclopedia again. But the Bible's a story... And so we want to let the Bible tell the story as much as we can how it was told. And so likewise, we did 2 Timothy, went verse by verse, and I primarily talked about how it was, a, it was a letter from Paul dying to a pastor who's struggling. And, and when you understand that, then let's apply it to everything else. But first we want to expose it. We want to expose it. You can do that on a small level like we do generally, or you can do it on a bigger level like we're going to do here. I do believe I'm going to be doing exposition these next four weeks, even though, like, when the fall, I'm going to hit, who knows, how many thousand chapters. But it is the thrust of that whole section. I mean, the whole Old Testament is, is talking about how God created the world and how we messed it up. And so, as we just get on that frame, we're going to get on the, the written revelation of God, the, how the Holy Spirit wrote it. And so, I just want to get on the Holy Spirit's dovetail and come as He wrote it, is what we want to do. And so that's what we'll do over these next few weeks, even though it's broader. Like last week, James chapter 3, that was an expository message. That wasn't, a, that wasn't a topical message on the tongue. James talked a lot about the tongue, and I just tried to let James speak. And so likewise here, even though we're covering so much, let's realize still it is exposition. Now there's a place for topical preaching, uh, that's for sure. I've been edified by it, it's helpful. But I view topical preaching more as a dessert that helps us, that's sweet. But we need to live on exposition. Teaches how to study the Bible. Gets in line with God's Spirit, and that's what helps us, and that's where we're going. So anyway, here's what we're going to do. Expository message, Genesis 1 and 2, and as it broads out throughout the rest of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Today we're creation. So let's begin with creation. We can open our Bibles at Genesis 1, 1. Right there at the beginning. 
It's how the Bible begins, how God's story begins. I want to just read through much of this chapter 1 and chapter 2 and comment lightly. And then we'll, we will launch out of this to have some implications. But we see in Genesis 1, this is the account of creation, how God created the world. There are six sections here in Genesis chapter 1. I believe there will be six literal days, 24-hour days. That's the point of evening and morning, day 1. Evening and morning, day 2. Evening and morning, day 3. Each day God speaks and various portions of the world are created. First, the cosmos. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness He called night, and there was evening, and there was morning one day. We see here God creating the heavens, we see here God creating the earth, we see here God creating the light, which He called good. That was day one. Day two, verse six. God creates the expanse. The expanse is what separates the waters above and the waters below. That's all I need to know. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Now, on the third day, God creates the land. He reveals the water, pulls the water away so the land can come up and see that. And He creates all the plants on here. And then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters He called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with a seed in them. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with a seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. Land, trees, bushes, vegetation, foliage, fruit, all capable of reproducing themselves. That's what God created on day three. On day four, it's the sun, the moon, and the stars. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights. The greater light, the sun to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. Understatement in the whole Bible. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. On day five, God creates animals, particularly creates animals of the sea and animals of the air. That is the fish and the birds. Listen to them. Verse 20, And then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created this great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning a fifth day. Fish filling the water birds filling the air, all capable of reproducing and being commanded to fill the earth. Day six, God creates a land, animals, and then the culmination of creation is man himself. Verse 24, And then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, notice how big this section is for mankind. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. Um, God has bestowed us with His image, unlike any other being, any other animal, any other object, we are made in the image of God. makes us distinct. What that image is, we don't have time to talk about today. It's just for another time. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves in the earth. And then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed and it shall be for food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves in the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that He had made. Here's the summary statement. And behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. A couple things really stand out here when you read the creation account. One is the incredible power of God. He can speak and the universe comes into existence. Think about day one. When you just see there, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He created ex nihilo. Hebrews 11 verse 3. He created out of nothing, He brought everything into being. Now, in order for things to come into being, there are certain laws of the universe that need to be established, like gravity, like the speed of light, like electromagnetics, like protons and neutrons and electrons and how the strong nuclear force works and how the weak nuclear force works. There needs to be a periodic table of elements. Maxwell's equations need to be true for light to work. All these things all came to pass. Scientists have spent thousands of years trying to figure out all this scientific stuff, the laws of the universe. I remember in college I was a physics major and I distinctly remember studying all this stuff about how the way just the, the forces work, how, how Newtonian physics works, how Einsteinian uh, rel- theory of relativity works and the Heisenberg principle and uh, electromagnetic waves and how waves work and how the statics work and electromagnetic and I studied long and hard for four years and I remember constantly thinking to myself I'm just trying to discover how God made and created things with the laws of the universe and and what took me four years and I just I just t- scratched the surface and people spend lifetimes getting doctorates and studying whatever, Fermilab, or they study whatever, just studying the research in physics or whatever. They study for years and they only just touch upon one little aspect of the physical world that God created all in a day with a word. It's the power of God. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And day three, think about this, the plants that He makes. He speaks and the plants come into existence complete with all plant physiology. Ready. Right there. Done. Plant tissue. How photosynthesis works. How respiration of plants work. How they take in carbon dioxide. How they take out oxygen. How they produce energy. Cellular structures. Genetics. Cell division. Seeds that reproduce. A plant that produces seeds that then fall on the ground and then can reproduce without testing it over and over and over again and refining it like we do. Iterations, we have a prototype and we have our alpha product and our beta product and we come to the end product and then we fix our bugs. God did first time and it worked. That is the power of God. We are still studying plant life to understand what God created in a day with His spoken word. I remember I took a class in... um, I don't even know what it was called, but the guy, the guy teaching it in college was an expert in plant physiology and he talked about this whole photosynthesis cycle. It is, un- the Krebs cycle and all this stuff. It is unbelievable the complexity about the electron transports and all this stuff to build these energy, ATP molecules and all this stuff. And, um, God, God thought it all about it and created it with a word in a day. Okay. Most of the day he wasn't working very hard, just so you know. Unbelievable power. Or the stars also. He can speak and vast number of stars come into existence. Billions and billions of galaxies. Each of those galaxies, billions and billions of stars with creativity, all different. All these plants, all these uh, stars rotating around each other, spanning millions and millions of light years. We are still trying to see to the end of what God has created. 
We can't see the end. And God created it in a day with a word, and He created the stars also. Unbelievable power, if you just think about this. Or, days 5 and 6, when He makes all these creatures and animals that that live in the waters and in the air and on the the land. God created them complete with all their anatomy and physiology in place. For all the different species of the world, working perfectly. Skeletal systems, muscular systems, nervous systems, cardiovascular systems, respiratory systems, digestive systems, reproductive systems, endocrine systems, metabolism, DNA, brain, ability to speak for humans. I mean, just, just the anatomy and physiology of a human being is, is enough to set anybody on a lifelong study. Physicians can't know it all. They're their specialists. They're cardio specialists or they're orthopedic specialists or they're orthodontic specialists. Whatever. You can only study. We can only know so much. And God not only made humans, but also He made all the different animals, each of them having unique DNA and each of them having different characteristics and made them all with the, with the, the word of His mouth and they all work. Sharks and whales and salmon and lobsters and eagles and owls and bats and hummingbirds and tigers and bears and rabbits and anteaters with a word, He spoke them all in days 5 and 6 and they all worked. Each of them unique, fully functional, able to produce after their kind, working perfectly on day 1. That is the power of God. It's no wonder that the rest of the Bible, we see verses that describe the great power of God Psalm 19, the heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. You just look in the heavens and you see the great glory of God. Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it was stood fast. And that is a proper response to Genesis chapter 1. Is that we understand that God is a Creator. He, he created everything. He owns everything. He rules everything, everything. Let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of Him. That comes out of Genesis 1. Now, another thing that really stands out here in the Genesis 1 is not only the greatness of God, but also the goodness of creation, which then reflects upon the goodness of God as well. Seven times this chapter, we see the goodness of creation mentioned. Verse 4, God saw the light, and it was good. Verse 9, when observing the land and the earth and the seas, God saw that it was good. I'm sorry, that's verse 10. Verse 12, when observing the plants, God saw that it was good. Verse 18, when observing the sun, moon, and stars, God saw that it was good. When observing the fish and the birds, verse 21, God saw that it was good. When observing the cattle and the creeping things and the beasts, verse 25, God saw that it was good. And the climax to creation comes in verse 31. And God saw... All that He made. And behold, it was very good. When God created the world, He created a very good world. Now, we live on this side of the fall and we see the destruction that sin has brought upon the world and we see how bad it is. We see the poverty. We see the pain. We see the wars. We see the injustice. We see how bad the world is. We see how how the fall has affected people in relationships. When prayer meeting today, Phil Gusky asked, well, how was your Thanksgiving? And uh, he said, some people have good families and some people have family tensions. They get together with the greater families. And, and stories were told about the difficult family relationships that everyone has. That's a result of the fall. It was not made that way originally. Sin has marred and changed things. So we might look at this side of creation, we might marvel at the glories of creation, but we might miss the goodness of creation because we see the goodness marred and dented and scratched up. I mean, it's a difference between driving a 2011 Mercedes and, and we're, we're driving, you know, a, a 1979 Gremlin is what we're, we're driving that's been used, has been beat up, and it's been abused, and it's been scratched, and it's been damaged, it's been accident. 
But there's a difference between that and what it was. In fact, the fall of man hasn't just affected people. It has affected all of creation. Romans 8.21 says, The whole creation groans and suffers pains of childbirth until now. And next week, we're going to look at how bad the fall is. We're going to start Genesis chapter 3 and just work through how bad things are and just the fall and all the, all the things that, that's happened there. And that's going to call us to say, hey, we need someone to fix this. Focusing us on a Redeemer. But that's, that's next week. I don't want to get ahead of myself. The point here is that when God created the world, it's very good. And when God restores the world, He's going to restore it to a, a perfect state with no sin, with His new heavens and the new earth. And it's going to be good once again. But I'll argue this, is that not only is the restoration going to be good like the original creation, I'm going to say the restoration is even better than what the earth was and the heavens were when it was created. Think about this. When Adam was created, it was very good, but Adam could sin. And Adam did sin. But in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no sin. There will be no tears. There'll be no possibility of that. God will give us glorified bodies. We won't sin anymore. We will be redeemed by Christ in a better circumstance then than Adam ever was in the garden. Jesus Christ also will be glorified. It'll be like the culmination of history. Is that Jesus isn't really glorified for His power and His holiness, but here's the whole point of the creation. Here's the whole point of the fall, I believe, is that Jesus will also be magnified for His grace the grace that brought us sinners to heaven. Ephesians 2 speaks about that. In the ages to come, that He might show forth the excellence of His kindness and grace towards those who believe. That's the whole point of going through the fall and dying for us and redeeming us is so that in heaven, in glory, Jesus might be worshipped for the glorious God that He is, but He also might be worshipped for a merciful God which would never have been possible unless the earth has gone through this difficult time it's going through right now. Unless... Post-creation, God will be more glorious than He ever was before, if that is possible even. Because He'll be glorified for His mercy on top of His glory and His holiness. I believe the first creation is a shadow of the new creation. It's a shadow of what everything will be like when it is restored. I do believe we get a little bit of a taste of it in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed. This is the seventh day, and all their hosts... By the seventh day, God completed His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it He rested from all His work which God, which God had created and made. In these verses, we see God resting from His creating work. There's a sense of satisfaction, a sense of completion, a sense of His work being done. I do believe that it's foreshadowing the new creation when God finally rests ultimately from His work in eternity, when we rest from our work as well. What has begun in the Gospel, we find rest in the Gospel, will be ultimately and perfectly completed in heaven. You know, this rest theme, you can pick it up here, right here from Genesis chapter 2, trace it through all the Bible, and people are always looking for rest. They're always looking for rest, whether it's in the promised land that's called rest. And David said, well, they, they sort of got it, but they didn't get it. There still remains a rest. And Hebrews says, yes, there is a rest for the people of God. But in the future, there's going to be this future rest from our works so we can rest fully in God. In Ezekiel 34, God promised to be a true shepherd to Israel. said, I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest. Jesus came and promised rest. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. In the last days, we hear the promise from heaven, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And yes, says the Holy Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors. We live in a, in a labor, difficult time. Even though saved and we're, we're saved, we're rescued from our works trying to merit our righteousness, we can rest in Jesus. But there's a time where we don't even have to work at all. We are just in His presence. And there'll be perfect rest. Now, it's not that we're sitting on a beach someplace in new creation tanning ourselves. no. There's work to be done, but the strife and the tensions of the fall will be finished. I mean, one of the curses of the fall is the hard work that comes with it. Chapter 3, verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it will grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. It's not the work is bad, it's given before the fall, but the work after the fall is different than the work before the fall. When you read about the work before the fall, there's a sense of 
of joy and help and service. And after the fall, it's toil and, and anguish and hardship. And I think we get a glimpse of that here with God resting. God has given some duties to mankind. They're in chapter 1, verse 26 and 28. God said, Let us make man our own image according to our own likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over every, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God has given us to rule the earth. That is for sure. He's given us to rule over the animals. That's a, it's a good thing that God has done for us. God has called us to rule over the sciences and to understand how He's made the world and to make technological innovations and to progress. He has also called us, verse 28, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is our mandate. To fill the earth and to rule the earth as God's creation, as God's image bearers, as God's representative upon earth. I could do no better than Nancy Guthrie who wrote a great book called, what's the book called? The Promised One talking about Jesus in Genesis. And commenting on here, she says this, Here at the beginning of God's story, Genesis 1, we see the picture of the kingdom of God as God created originally and the way that God intends for it to be in eternity. God's people living in God's place under God's rule. God's people, originally Adam and Eve, later the children of Israel, ultimately the church. Living in God's place. Originally the Garden of Eden, later the Promised Land, ultimately the new heavens and earth. Under God's rule, the Word of God expressed originally in God's instruction to Adam and Eve, later in the Ten Commandments, and most fully in the person of Jesus Christ. God's people living in God's place under God's rule. And then says the rest of the Bible, okay, that's like Genesis 3 on, is a story of God's work to restore His original creation to all that it, He intends for it to be forever. In Genesis 1, we discover the meaning and purpose for which each of us was created. To bear the image of God and to fulfill the destiny which God has given to us. To be like Him, to be with Him, and to rule with Him. Now, in some measure, we are doing that. It's mankind, if you will. Covering the whole face of the earth. People are worried today about population explosion. How many people? We've got 7 billion now, I think. And, but, but that is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to fill the earth. We're supposed to subdue it. On one hand, we're doing that. We are conquering technological challenges. But on the other hand, things are dreadfully wrong. I mean, it feels like we're abusing the environment more. It feels like we are... I'm not a huge environmentalist, but God has given us a stewardship for us. It seems like some of the technological advances are used for harm, not for good. We, we, we've, we've covered the earth, but still there's fightings and wars and conflicts. It's not, it's not gone like it should go. And just feel that. As you feel that in your heart, and as you even speak to other people, they feel that in their heart. And you can tell them, but that's not where history is going. The, the great narrative of history is, yes, we're in the fall now. Jesus has come to redeem it, and through His work, will restore it to how it should be, to how everything that you probably think it should be is what it's going to be like. Let's go back to Genesis. Chapter 1 focuses on the big picture of creation. Chapter 2 focuses on the specific creation of Adam and Eve. Just as in chapter 1, Adam and Eve, mankind, had more verses, four, five, six verses. Out of that whole chapter, it's more than any other day. So also here in chapter 2, the creation of man just expands as how important man is as God's image bearers upon the earth. Verse 4, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. This is the field. This is different than the garden. Okay, The plants hadn't gone every place. They were in the garden. They hadn't gone out further. But a mist used to rise from the ground and water the whole surface of the ground. But God needs someone to tend to the fields. Needs someone to tend to the garden. And the Lord God, verse 7, formed man out of the dust from the ground. Never forget, this is what we are. We are dust. Those who strike their fists at God is like dirt striking their fist at God. That's who we are. We're nothing but dirt. Poor man from the dust of the ground breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man in whom he had formed. 
And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it divided. It became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold. The gold that's in that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. There's what his work is. The Lord... The God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the garden, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Here we see Adam placed in the garden. I think the whole point of this is that he is surrounded by everything he needs. There's nothing that Adam lacks. He has a garden filled with luscious things to eat. He has abundant water. I think that's a lot of the point. Verses 10 through 14 is abundant water. I think the whole gold and bdellium, he's abundant resources available to him as well. This water causes the garden to flourish. The trees are pleasing to the sight. The fruit of the garden is good for food. The tree of life is in the garden. Eating of that keeps him alive. And God had generously provided for Adam everything that he needs. He says, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Any tree. The only negative thing about the Garden of Eden was one small prohibition, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. For from the day you eat of it, you will surely die. God gave every tree to Adam except one. He provided him with everything he needed. He provided him everything pleasurable. He provided everything to him. And you just see the overwhelming, I hope you see this, goodness and kindness of God. The work that God gives Adam to do even seems good cultivating. Verse two, chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. There's discussion about what exactly these words mean, whether it means he took out his hoe or whether it just means he's serving God in the garden. We don't know exactly what it is, but somehow just, just tilling the garden, keeping the garden. You know, it's, a, it's an honor to be a, a gardener at Disneyland when things are just kept so pristine and so perfect and so likewise. It would be an honor to be a gardener in the Garden of Eden. No weeds. Think about that. Make our work easier. Just, just bring the water, right? Just help them. Maybe if they fall down or something, kind of pick them up. I don't know. Seems easy. Seems good. The goodness of God continues in verse 18, uh, uh, providing a helper. The Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. Then the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman, the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, Wow! Right? Oh, that's, that's in the white space there. No. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. And for this reason, God establishing the beauties and the glories and the bliss of marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. The picture here is of marital harmony. Adam, the perfect man, given responsibility over the garden. Eve, the perfect woman, given us a help to him to accomplish his task. Naked, unashamed, total openness in their marriage, walking in harmony with each other and with the Lord. I mean, what more could Adam ask for? Nothing. It was very good. That's the original creation. Demonstrates the power of God. Demonstrates the goodness of God. And these, these themes, by the way, are themes which, which run throughout all the Scripture. The power of God and the goodness of God. I mean, if you thought about this whole message today, and you just remember, I just remember, God is great and God is good. That will solve many problems in our lives. That will help you. 
And I think that's some of the thrust of this. And it just sets a trajectory about the kind of God who has created this world. We have a good God. We have a kind God. Not like the Hindu gods who are mean and evil and snakes and demons who are out to get you unless you serve them right. Right, Bob? I mean, these, it's a good God that we have. And this is the foundation of Scripture that God has created the world. Throughout all of Scripture, He always reminds us people, I'm the Creator. You're the creature. I'm running short on time, but I'll just, I'll just say a few. Jeremiah 10.16 For the Maker of all is He, the Lord of hosts is His name. I've made everything. Isaiah 43.15 I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. I'm the One who created everything. I'm the King. And you are the servants. Psalm 95, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are His also. The sea is His because it was He who made it. And His hands form the dry land. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. And we're called then to joyfully worship this Creator God. Psalm 95, verse 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. Because He's a great God, worthy of all worship, and because He's a good God, He will receive us, sinners though we be, redeemed through Christ. Psalm 149, verse 2, Let Israel be glad in His makers, and let the, let Israel be glad in His maker, and let the sons of Zion rejoice in their King. We ought to rejoice in our Maker. We ought to celebrate our King. And literally all over Scripture, we're reminded that God is the potter and that we are the clay. Isaiah 45, verse 9, Woe to the one who quarrels with his Maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth will, will clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, He has no hands. Pots don't rebel against their Creator unless something is totally amiss. And something is totally amiss when we rebel against the Lord our God, our Maker. When you miss that God's the Creator of all things, listen, you've missed the part of the story of the, of the Bible. Is that God created, is a good and great God who's created the world, but we've messed it up and it has fallen. But yes, still God is good and He sends a Redeemer and will restore all things to be perfect someday. First chapter of Romans, Paul gives a fundamental problem with people all throughout time is they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and beasts four-footed animals and crawling creatures. People exchange the truth of God, which they know because God has revealed it to them, and they exchange it for a lie and worship and serve the creator, the creature rather than the creator is blessed forever. When people deny that God is the creator, let's tell them of our creator God. Let's tell them how great He is. Let's show them how good He is. And so Paul did. If we had time, we'd go to Acts chapter 14 where Paul is at Lystra he and Barnabas were worshipped as Zermes, uh, Zeus and Hermes. He said, no, 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 we're not, we're not like that. We're people just like you. But you need to know about the good Creator God who made you and gave you every good thing. He gave you good times. Gave you fruitful seasons. Satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Here's a God. He made everything and He is a living God. He is a good God. Don't worship us. Worship Him. And as much as they tried to communicate that God was Creator... Those in Lystra still sacrificed to them. Or in Athens, when Paul came to the intellectuals. I mean, we're, we're filled with the Areopagus today. People think they're so erudite and so smart in all their evolutionary talks and they, they've got it all figured out. Where, where Paul said, Men of Athens, I observe you're very religious. I was passing through and examining an object of worship. I found an altar to an unknown God. There was a God they had that just in case they missed anything. Therefore, you who have been ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heavens and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all life and breath and all things. He goes on to speak about how He made from one person, Adam, the whole human race. He speaks about how even your own prophets say this, and He brings it down to Jesus. He says, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because He is fixed today. 
in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. You see, these, these people in Areopagus, in, in Athens, right, didn't have a, a picture of the Creator God. And, and, and Paul came and said, here's your Creator God. He's created. He doesn't need you. He's created all things. He is sovereign. And He has been good and kind in sending Jesus. He's overlooked your ignorance. He's overlooked your sins. But now He's bringing Jesus to you. And you need to repent and believe in Him. Now, some believed. Some were like, I don't know. And some hated Him. Kicked Him out of the Areopagus. Oh, you know, He's talking foolishness, that was Paul. But when they didn't understand the creation, what did Paul do? He brought them back to the foundational truth of the story of the Bible is that God created the world. And that He is the Creator and that we are the, the creatures. i got one last point here, one last thought. You say, why did God create the world? Okay, this is for my, my kids' club. Guys, you ready? You ready? You ready, guys? Who made you? What else did God make? Why did God make you in all things? There it is right there. Why did God create? He created us for His glory. Isaiah 43, verse 7 says, Everyone who is called by My name, I have created for My glory. That is the great end to which God has created the world. It's the great glory of this magnificent Creator God. And I say, church family, with Solomon... One last admonition, Ecclesiastes 12.1, remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Father, I would pray that these thoughts might bring us to grips with the realities that You have made us. Psalm 139 speaks about how intimately acquainted You are with all of our ways. Why? Because You formed us in our mother's womb. Before Jeremiah was born, God, You formed him and created him. May we realize, God, that the the fingers and toes that we have are because of Your creating power. We can act like our body is our own, but it's not. Our body is Yours as Creator. And also, for those of us who believe in Jesus, our body is Yours because You've bought us the price your blood. I pray we'd marvel at the fact, O oh Lord, that You are the sovereign Creator over all things. And that we need to give glory to You. That's why You have created us. That we might be vessels of mercy, giving great honor and glory to King Jesus. So Father, I pray that this would be our meditation all week long and even next week as so we think about the fall. May it draw us to our Redeemer. May it draw us to this restoration that we all anticipate and hope for and long for. So help us in this survey of the Bible to, to read the Bible rightly. God, to see the big picture, to see the story for what it is. So help this to come into our minds, change the way we live. In Christ's name, amen.